Welcome to Presence Church's Sermon of the Week. We are so excited to share this powerful word with you. What an introduction. I've never been told that I'm the bringer of a plague before, but <laughs> thanks so much. Really grateful for that one, Jesse. This is the bringer of the plague. Here I am. <laughs> ah. Oh my goodness. This is actually the last time. The, the, this was the last time that I spoke before the pandemic. I, I, no, I was in Mexico City for a conference, but this was the last place in California that I spoke live and then I've been doing Zoom calls. So who knows what's going to happen today? It's been a year since I've had the microphone. Um, wow, it's so lovely to see your faces. Hi out there. Bless you for, for diligently listening outside. I'm so impressed. And you're going to get a nice tan as well. So that's fun. Um, wow. I was so blessed last time I came here. I really felt... Um, I always cry when I'm here because of the presence of the Lord. I mean, I guess that's in the title. You'd expect that. But um, it's nice to know that it does actually bear its own fruit. And I see the transformation in the family here. Um, the smiles on your faces. I can't tell what seasons you're in because you always choose how to bring yourself to the table here. Um, and that's, that's nice to have in church. <laughs> Today I actually wanted to talk about um, how we do righteousness in the face of injustice. Just a light topic, just chirpy. <laughs> um, you know, that's what I think we're all looking for today. Um, but we've had quite a year. I started off with bringing the plague, but then we also had... <laughs> we also had a lot of arguing going on this year. A lot of fighting. And um, peace was robbed from us an awful lot in many, many different ways. And so I'm going to talk about that today. But I, I'm going to do two things first. Number one, I'm going to do a very shameless book plug. <laughs> it's out. It's out. Actually, yeah, that's right. It wasn't out last year. So I was talking about um, nobility, how the virtue of nobility is becoming a lost art form. And when I was an atheist, I was enamored by noble Christians. How many of you understand? There aren't huge amounts of those around. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Okay. Thank you. Sorry. Obviously, we're all noble. It's everyone else that isn't. <laughs> And so I was always enamored by people that chose to do the act that no one else dared do. I was always enamored by people forgiving the unforgivable. I was always enamored by those that chose to stay in a place that was uncomfortable for them because they knew they had to be. No one else was willing to be in the room. And so I wrote a book on nobility and I called it The Noble Renaissance. And it came out the very day that George Floyd's Blackout Tuesday happened on Instagram. So it was the worst time to release a book. <laughs> and the very first line in the book was, it is witnessed in the kneeling of Martin Luther King on Selma Bridge. So the timing of it felt important, but it didn't feel like the right time to promote it. I wanted to go and march for justice instead. But this book is basically... A a collection of what I believe to be seven virtues of what creates a noble character. 
And I did a lot of studying of the names and the no-namers, the Aunt Susans who make coffee at the back that no one talks about, but actually she's leading an incredibly noble life. It's not always the Mother Teresa's or the Martin Luther King's, but actually the ones that are serving others and choosing to self-sacrifice on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm a bit tired of hearing the, the whole lingo of you're going to influence the influential. I don't think heaven cares about the influential. Sorry. I actually, I actually feel like heaven cares about our character. How we're stewarding ourselves. Did you love well? We forgot what you did for a living, but did you love well? <laughs> I care about character. And I'm really nervous that we're about to lose the power of the church or the power of our Lord through us because we forgot how to steward character. You want to steward revival? You want to see a revival? You better steward your character. We want the, the, the weight of favor. We want the responsibility of revival. But do you understand what you have to cultivate with the Lord on a day-to-day -day basis in order to handle the very things that you have to face with revival? We're losing numbers because we're not stewarding our character. And one of the virtues is righteousness. And I don't mean self-righteousness, which is what we seem to interpret that for. <laughs> Whose birthday is it today? Is there a birthday? Birthday? Anyone today? Tomorrow? Oh, sorry. Too late. Too late for you. You don't get the book. Um, no, I'm going to give it to you. So this is an unsigned copy, which is worth much more. Well done. Lucky you. Huh? It's going to be worth five bucks soon. But would you turn to your Bibles? Now listen, if you're like me, sometimes I don't bring my Bible and I bring like my phone. That doesn't count. It doesn't count anymore. Sometimes I've raised my file effects going, yep, yeah, got it. Got it. Got my Bible. That's a lie, Carrie. You're not bringing your Bible. That's a file effects. Okay. Who has a file effects anymore? Just me? What do you mean, what is a file effects? I'm only 25, I know, it's hard to believe, right. A daytimer, a daytimer, what's a daytimer? Oh, we've already lost in translation. My English is coming out. File effects is, I guess, just a schedule, time, just a schedule, of jet, yeah. A daytimer, is that what you call it? How have I lived in America for eight years and I've never known that, okay, we're, we're digressing, I'm sorry. You came for the glory and I'm talking about file effects and daytimers, okay. I want you to turn to Matthew 5, 38. Chapter 5, verse 38. I didn't give you guys a heads up on that, sorry. That's all right. I'm just going to speak it. Use my beautiful accent. <laughs> you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Go also to Psalm 23. 
and I love the fact that you, your first hymn today is in reference to this. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I'm going to say again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Doesn't really fit in with cancel culture. Sorry, guys. Doesn't really fit in with boundaries either. <laughs> I don't know where we got righteousness wrong. I don't know where the church thought it was okay to start becoming more and more like Pharisees again. We're wearing the phylacteries on our head, but behind closed doors, we're unfollowing everyone we disagree with. We're turning away because we don't want it to affect us, influence us, burden us. We don't want it to be painful. And I don't know about you, but some of the most mightiest times I felt the presence of the Lord is when I saw someone stand in the face and dine with their enemies and still stay loving them. Whatever you mean enemies to be in your life, whatever it means to you in your moment right now, I know as I'm speaking, some of you guys are going to have names, people, people that have hurt you. There's going to be people that have been in domestic violent relationships. There's going to be addicts that are coming to your mind. I need you to not put them away. I don't want you to try and skip over it and focus on what I'm saying. Allow that name to come up and let it sit with you. Let it dine with you. Because there's actually a reason why you're in their life and why they're in yours. <laughs> it's not just one way. Just because you know the Bible doesn't mean that you're more important. This is going to be quite a convicting message. I don't want it to be like where you just feel dreadful for the rest of the day. <laughs> I want it to be something where it, hopefully it inspires you. Because justice to Jesus meant something very, very different. In fact... Before I give you what my thoughts are, why don't some of you just shout out what you think justice means to Jesus? Just names, words. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Mercy. Power. Power. Truth. Grace. Love. Love. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Wow. Freedom. Freedom. Treating people. Value. Yeah. If you look at Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and not through his doing, <laughs> he wasn't all that amused. Why would you be? <laughs> and he hadn't been encountered by God at this point. He hadn't been told that this was something to do with God. He made a decision, knowing, knowing he was known as a, he's labeled as a just man in the Bible. Joseph could have had Mary executed. The punishment for laying with somebody else if you're betrothed was to be stoned. But Joseph made a decision that he was actually just going to quietly divorce her. That's all it was going to be. Until he has the encounter with the Lord and then he stays and valiantly becomes 
Joseph, the Joseph that we know. But why wouldn't he go and use the very punishment that is allowed and actually is part of the law? Why wouldn't he use that? Because I'd like to propose that justice is actually about the lifting up of somebody else. It's really hard, I know, to imagine the very names that are coming to mind and think about how can I lift that person up when they've caused us so much pain. The reason why we retaliate is because of the pain they've caused us. And we're wanting them to learn. We're wanting them not to do it again. In the name of justice, we want to make sure that they'll learn this time. Sometimes we seem to think that if we give the opinion of what's in the gospel, of what's in scripture, and blast it on social media, or interact in just a conversation, we think it's our duty to defend God. You're not here to defend him. You're here to emulate him. And I don't know how many times we're getting this so wrong that we then divide and lose the very connection that Jesus has placed in front of us to nurture, to dine with, to talk with. I find it so interesting that there is this, therefore, approach to lift up the other person. Last time I was here, I was talking about the Samaritan woman at the well, and he was talking to her, lifting her up when everyone else had outcast her and pushed her away. I find it interesting as well that Gandhi, who had taken two very profound teachings in his life, one of them was Hindu, the other one was the Sermon of the Mount. It was his, one of his favorite teachings, and he used that teaching 1,915 years later to be the freedom of India against the oppression and the racism that India was facing. He didn't have credentials. He wasn't influential. He was a random barrister that saw an injustice and wanted to do something different than what everyone else had been doing, which was not be violent. The Hindus and Muslims had been incredibly violent. Gandhi, inspired by the Sermon of the Mount preaching, made a decision that he was going to do it a different way. Jesus' approach was always the third way. A third, a new creative concept that no one else had thought about before. This is why his teachings were so profound, because they were so original. No one until this point had even had the concept. When he was talking about turning the cheek, I don't know how many of you know this. You may have talked about this many times, Jesse, and maybe I'm just backing up what you've already shared to your congregation, but it was a right-handed world. The left hand was always used for something very different. I don't need to go into too much detail, but there was no shaman or toilet paper during that time. So we never used the left hand for any kind of contact with anyone else. If someone were to hit you on the right cheek, it would normally be a backhanded right hand from the back. So it was an insult to be hit on the right cheek. It was also suggesting the hierarchy. So mastered would slap their slaves, wives, different people on the left. Turn the left also would suggest, it's not hit me again. It's If I'm turning my left cheek to you, it means you have to hit me like I'm your equal. To hit someone with the right on the left-hand cheek is their equal. 
I think sometimes we see these things of just being a walkover, being a bulldoze, being bulldozed by someone else's actions because that's the good Christian thing to do. There are times we do need to stand up for justice. There are times we do need to fight for the voiceless. But it's how you do it. And it's never by pulling the other side down. Even the Me Too movement that we have going on, we're all celebrating these people going into prison. I would like to suggest that the real win would have been if they'd been rehabilitated. If we'd actually had an environment, not a pit of vipers waiting to punish the next person that's done something wrong, but actually a space to go, why did we do this in the first place? Let's talk about why we did this. Let's talk about the fact that we revered power so much that it made you invincible. Let's talk about the fact that we might be creating more of a problem than solutions. And now everyone's terrified in the industry. Now everyone's terrified. You should see the emails, how different the emails are these days coming to me if I'm working in the film industry to what they were 10 years ago. Everyone's terrified. Maybe that's no bad thing. But I would also suggest it creates a huge amount of shame and hiddenness. We didn't make space for safety of confession. We didn't make a belief in a second chance. We have to create an environment that we start to lift up the other. But the reason why we don't is because we're looking for their change, their transformation to change us. Rather than allowing the glory of our Lord, the gaze of him on our lives to be the restoration, we're looking for their change to confirm something in us. It's essentially pretty codependent. <laughs> Does that make sense? I was constantly looking for justice, constantly looking for the one-upmanship. How many virals do we see today where we're just seeing one speaker or preacher slay the other one in some amazing <laughs> logistical argument? And we think it's fabulous and we get really excited because someone just outsmarted the other. But that's not justice. That's just a good argument. It doesn't change. It doesn't transform anyone. Sometimes when we bring justice, we bring the strength, but we forget to bring the humility. It must be both. And because we believe we're right, we create this ethereal approach that doesn't really allow space for conversation, space for opening up, space for being transformed by the other. This is a very profound story, and I'm sorry that I've got a couple of students that were in my life before, and they've heard this story before because I've used it an awful lot of times. But it's one of the most powerful ones to me in the sense of how we respond to injustice and then glorifying his name. It's basically a, a, a small tribal village that were uh, many, many Christians that had a small village hall. And gunmen, tribal gunsmen, had rounded up a bunch of Christians and put them into this village hall, all into the center of the space. Some of the family members were outside, and some were inside. Children, very, very little children, all the way up to grown, grown adults going into retirement. Gunmen circled them all the way around with AK-47s ready to shoot them, but they put a picture of Jesus Christ on the door of the exit. This is a true story. The gunman said, you've got two choices. If you want to live, you can go through that door, but you have to spit on the face of Christ before you do. If you don't want to spit on the face of Christ, well, then you can just die right here. 
And you've got to understand, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not putting a judgment on this moment, but you can understand why some people just wanted to walk out because they're fathers or mothers of children outside. They're thinking of the safety of their children. They're thinking about who's going to take care of them. And in the tension, in the understanding of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, one by one they walk out, spit on the face of Christ, and walk out. One by one, the gunmen are feeling pretty good about themselves by this point, because that's all they wanted. They just wanted to see that Christ was denied in front of them so they could get their power, they could get their moment. But then this 11-year-old girl stands up. She walks to the door. She takes her skirt, wipes down the face of Jesus, comes back into the center of the room, and she said, no one spits on the face of my father. You can do whatever you want, but I can't have that. Sat down, cross-legged. All the others in the room were so moved, so touched, and equally terrified. But there was something about the courage in her. There was something about her being able to say no. Not because she was looking for the approval or even the valiant triumph of denying an AK-47 in front of her face. Because she'd been filled up by something else. And it wasn't based on man. So death for her was just a speed bump. And arguably, she didn't have as many responsibilities. But what it did do was make the tribal government lower their guns. They couldn't believe that one so little could be so courageous. And in that moment, they wanted to know what she was on. (laughs) And could they have a crate of it? See, there's something about noble acts that changes the game. But it has to be at the sacrifice of ourselves. It can't be at the sacrifice of the next generation. The beauty of Gandhi freeing India was the fact that every time there was some kind of force being helped to them, they took it. They didn't pass it on. They didn't protect themselves or blame or project. They actually chose a way to take on the suffering so the next generation wouldn't have it. I don't know about you, but it's a really nice idea. It's hard to actually implement in your life. And of course, a lot of you guys are not going to be in those situations, thankfully. Thanks to those people that have done that. But I find myself in moments where I just get so inspired by the courage of someone that chose to speak the truth, injustice, but never with a cruelty towards the other person. How are you guys doing so far? Just, just good to check, isn't it? Make sure I'm not sleeping. I actually had someone. Um, they came, I was talking about codependency. And they'd fallen asleep for the whole session. <laughs> Maybe it was my lovely accent, I don't know. But, however, she came, she was off her face by the end. She woke up and was shaking and all that. She couldn't drive. She went to the car park and she went, I'm going to have to go and ask Carrie to pray for me. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> she came back and she said, could you... And she couldn't speak English very well, but I could kind of catch what she was saying. She said, I didn't really understand what you were saying, you know, because you're English and I'm not. <laughs> um, but I was out for the whole time. And, but I feel like God's doing something. Can you pray for me? And 
I'm digressing on a story that is not related at all to this topic whatsoever. But I prayed for her, and the next... She'd gone through a really difficult time in a marriage. It's like 25 years of just a hellish marriage, and she was about to sign a divorce paper the next day. But something had shifted in her, that she was looking for the... Ju- yeah, we, do, we do have a connection point. She was looking for the justice point with her husband. She was looking for him to change, him to do something different. But because it wasn't happening in 25 years... She was making a decision she was going to divorce. Something in her being comatose, maybe it was her finally shutting up and the Lord being able to do something with her, that she actually just changed. Something shifted. Something shifted in her that stopped expecting the other person to change. And the times where I've lost myself, the times where I've really not done a good job in life at all, it's when I've just had these ridiculous expectations of someone making a different choice that was based on my hope, my comfort. I think it's time that the church actually start recognizing that Christianity isn't supposed to be Christy. I know we talk about he's the fullness of joy. He brings you your freedom. He's the breakthrough. He's, he's all of those things, absolutely. But sometimes the importance of sitting in the struggle is exactly the part of the building that makes you have the breakthrough. I've often tried to avoid the storms all the time just for an easier life. And yet here I am wanting to be strong and courageous, but I haven't built anything in me to face these adverse moments. There are too many times in the Bible where it talks about us. I mean, how many times do you hear Paul? You look at Paul's life going, it doesn't really sell, you know, living as a believer well. Does it? It's shipwrecks, <laughs> captivity. Only one hour to write a day because the sun's only on the desk at that point from the prison cell. Like, it's, you know, it just wasn't fun. It doesn't really sell the gospel in certain ways. <laughs> and yet, look at what he did do. Look at the transformation he did bring because he knew how to depict the gospel in a way that modeled, didn't just pre- preach, didn't just speak, didn't just flout out opinions on Instagram, he actually acted it. But that takes courage. It takes perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. Character leads to hope. You want to be hopeful? You might want to start persevering. I didn't realize how often there was a connection between hopelessness and self-criticism. And my self-criticism made it really hard for me to persevere. Because how, many ti- how easy is it, honestly, if you're trying to walk a tightrope, for example, and you're falling off all the time, and then you tell yourself off for falling off? It's not very easy to keep getting back up on the tightrope all the time. Is there another word for tightrope? In It's the same word. It's not like kombucha or something. I don't know. Slack line. Okay, thank you. Maybe Jesse should just stand up here and translate every word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think sometimes in the moments of, of adversity, see it as an opportunity to really find where the Lord shows up. There have been too many times, like, like that beautiful story of the Korean girl and being in a space where she really didn't know which way it was going to go. Years ago... Um, I'm sure you guys had heard about it in the news. Oh, gosh, I'm thinking 2014, maybe 2015. Uh, Boko Haram had kidnapped 270 girls from Chibok and taken them hostage 
into a forest camp that no one really knew where it was, but they were trucked out to this forest camp. And a friend of mine who was leading an anti-sex trafficking organization at the time, um, and I had already worked with her in missions in Philippines, um, had called me saying, I'm about to go and get five of the girls. And I went, is that a good idea? Do we want to put ourselves in this particular situation? You know, because they, firstly, Boko Haram have a huge amount of money. Uh, you don't, I've seen you try and operate a gun. It's terrible. It's not a good idea. You know, I was trying to really coach her out of this idea. Okay, maybe just write a letter. Maybe just, you know. She went, no. <laughs> Off I go, feel the Lord on it. And she's a powerful, mighty woman, equally terrifying, but brilliant all at the same time. And uh, somehow she manages to get a message across to the five girls that, did able, that were able to escape through the restroom during one night. I think they were probably there for about five to ten days in the camp themselves. So they'd already witnessed a huge amount of gang rape and some really horrific atrocities for girls at the age of 11 and 12, never mind fully grown women should never see. And so they're on their feet, barefoot, running as far as they can without being caught by Boko Haram. Boko Haram are also aware they've lost five girls because they've been keeping count very carefully. So now they're on the run from them, as is my friend who has now managed to find them in a particular location and is now trying to get America to catch the asylum for these five so they can get out of the country. Because it's not only the children that are in danger, it's also now their families that are in danger because Boko Haram are able to track and trace anyone that is connected to these ones because they're trying to get them back. They feel an injustice for the fact that these girls have been taken from them. The irony. And so for six months, my friend is on the run with one female bodyguard because she's aware that any male presence at this time is not going to be useful for high trauma victims like these. So it's a, a female um, secret service woman that's just awesome and also terrifying. But they were on the run for six months and there would be knocks at 2 a.m. in the morning going, right, we've got to go now. They know where we are, we've got to go now. She managed to get 42 members of Congress to sign papers in order to get the five girls over to America. And then she called me saying, I need you to come and live with them for a week. They didn't speak a word of English. We had to have interpreters. I was teaching them about how to process pain through journaling because I realized they wouldn't be able to do that necessarily in English to anyone that we had. We had some interpreters, but not full time. But I was teaching them about the secret place. They were all believers, of course, as well. That's why they were kidnapped in the first place. But what was really fascinating to me is how they talked about having an AK-47 put to their head and told to deny Christ. One of them went, no. <laughs> as if someone went, can I borrow your jacket, please? She went, no. It was just like, a, that's a no-brainer for me. You can do whatever you want, but I'm not. And I'm listening to, she was 15. I'm like, what did you say? <laughs> And then another one was saying, well, I gave a bit of information to one guy that had captured me for about 20, 24 hours. And, um, and the other one that had denied, you know, had refused to deny Christ. She said, well, why did you give them information? You shouldn't have done that. She said, well, I didn't give them much information, a little bit of information, but not much. And she said, well, why? And they were, they were giving cheese and biscuits. Of course I'm going to give some information. And I'm like, do you understand how you guys are talking right now about the Boko Haram. 
But there was something in them because they'd faced so much adversity and had persevered through so much. This was getting more and more minor to them. And I kind of look at the apostles compared to when they were disciples. Have you noticed the difference when you read the Acts versus when you read the Gospels? If you look at the Acts of the Holy Spirit, I always like to call the whole book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. When you start to actually see the power of these disciples questioning all the time the Beatitudes, which was also within the Sermon of the Mount, the beautiful attitudes, as I like to call them. They were embracing this power of Jesus, of how he was. They were listening and in awe of him, but they weren't taking ownership of knowing that they could actually have that too. As soon as Jesus leaves, then things start changing. Now they're like, we, we don't have anyone else to look to. We're going to have to do this ourselves. We're actually going to have to, yes, I know the Holy Spirit's going to come, but there's a bit of an interim period here where they actually had to grieve. And now they had chance to look in the grief and in the mourning what the Lord had taught them all of those three years of ministry. Now they're looking at how can we actually embrace the very things that he was teaching us. He was setting us up. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a bit disheartened in the church because we're, we're buckling to the battles. We're forming opinions to meet opinions. We're doing an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we've forgotten to dine in the presence of people that don't agree with us. I was sitting around a table one uh, a few years ago in a pub with my girlfriends. And these particular girlfriends, none of them are believers, but we've been friends for 30 years. And they're always fascinated by my career and my career choice. <laughs> but um, they were asking just questions about Bethel and church and the things that were going on up there. And I was just talking about, I was actually talking about dating and I was talking about single, singleness and dating in the church, which was fun. Always a lovely topic to share. And um, yeah. And so I, I was sharing about DTRing or defining the relationship and all these sort of new concepts that I'd learned in Northern California of how do you date and you have the different stages of dating and all these different things. And all of a sudden there's these two guys on another table that are pointing and mocking me. And I'm not quite sure what is so funny about what I'm sharing, but I'm sort of looking occasionally and then coming back to the table and having conversations with friends and I'm like, but it's just quite distracting because I haven't had that since, you know, I was at school. So, <laughs> so here I am and, and just with my girls and then all of a sudden they come and join the table. I thought, did anyone invite them? Or, oh, okay, here they are. And then they started going in, like really going into me about how I was anti-Semitic. I don't know where we got that from from talking about defining the relationship and dating and the single life workshop course that was going, I don't know where he got that I was an anti-Semite, but he was just projecting all of his absolute hate on religion and God. He was a doctor. He'd faced an awful lot of death and suffering in his day. And you could see and could feel that it had actually become very bitter for him to even believe in something that could be good when he sees so much suffering. Totally understood it. The problem was he was laying into me so hard and fast, my girlfriends were wanting to defend me. And they were like, hang on a minute. She didn't say anything like that. And they were really rising to the occasion. I went, no, let him talk. And they didn't like it. They didn't like, I mean, they, they're not that protective. I've never seen them be that protective normally. But for some reason, this really riled them. 
And I just sat, tried to, and I was surprised at myself normally, because normally I'd be defending myself, to be honest with you. Because um, I'm not very good when I hear mean things be said about the Lord and Saviour that saved me. Like, I'm not very good about hearing that stuff. But there was something that overcame me that had this amazing amount of compassion towards these two. And the other one was just gearing him up and going, yeah, just occasionally, but didn't really know what he was talking about. And I said, you know, you make some great arguments against the existence of God, but, you know, you should really probably be looking at... And I gave him a whole list of new atheists and new new atheist literature. And they were stunned because they were expecting me to come out with the scripture or the Bible. But I went, no, if you really, if you really want good arguments against, against the existence of God, you're using the wrong authors for a start. You need to be using... <laughs> And gave them this huge list. Of course, he never asked me a question like, have you ever been an atheist yourself? Have you ever had an encounter with the Lord that changed your entire dynamic of your lifespan? Have you ever actually encountered a sign and wonder or a miracle? Have you ever actually asked questions to God and then come out with a different question? No, he didn't ask any of that. He went straight into, you're an anti-Semite, which doesn't make any sense because I'd just gone on a lovely date with a Jewish man a week before. So it didn't make any sense to me quite... So there I am in this sort of very uncomfortable moment in a pub when I was like, this is one's not the plan for the evening, but here I am. So I give them this list and they're stunned because they were expecting something else. They were expecting the rebuttal. They were expecting the, the big argument like most Christians probably would do at this point. Instead, I'm giving them literature that will back up their point. Because all they wanted was to win. They were having a rhetorical conversation with me and hoping that I could either be annihilated by it or something else. And I said, but I will say this as well. You came over to my table to annihilate me in some way, shape or form, or have an apology for me. Because I'm representing the very thing you despise. So I will say this, I'm so sorry for the very suffering and the death that you face on a day-to-day basis. I can't imagine. And I'm actually really thankful that there's people like you that are doing the job that you're doing. I'm starting crying. I'm really grateful for you. And I know what I'm talking about will really rile you because somehow you're questioning the goodness of a God that will allow suffering like you witness every single day. I get it. I get it because I've also been an atheist myself. I said, however, I will not dare to try and explain why those things happen on a day-to-day basis. I do believe in a very different entity that steals, kills, and destroys. But right now, you don't need to hear that information. What you need to know is that I value who you are and what you do for a living. And I totally hear your points. But if it's all right with you, the very thing that you believe in, which is not this, told you to come over to my table and annihilate me in front of all of my friends. I said, however... The thing that I believe in now tells me to make a space for you at my table. And so if it's all right with you, I'm going to stay believing on this side of the equation as a good God that helps me find compassion for moments that I want to hurt you because you were trying to hurt me. What I didn't know is his wife was sitting at the table and she looked, there's this silence. He's feeling pretty awful, as is his friend who's going, yeah. <laughs> but like, who are you agreeing with, him or him? I Like, which one do you want to... Does anyone who's making a good point? I don't know. Which is that he represents me a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
so <laughs> I'm in this spot where it could go either way. Either he could just leave me and leave the table and never want to see me again. <laughs> or I'm now in this third option where the wife looks to the man and goes, you idiot. <laughs> just really, I'm like, oh no. Oh, I didn't even think about the third option, which is your spouse witnessing this entire event. He goes, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's stuff coming up for me and I, I, maybe I need to look at it. Um, and then he said, um, I said, you know, I, I said, mine's a Pinot Noir. Does anyone else want to? <laughs> so he brought a, a sweet glass of wine for everyone. In my mind, we were having communion. In his mind, we were just all having a drink. <laughs> but I wanted to respect his choice. And I, I think sometimes our fear stops us allowing someone to make the choices that they're making. Our fear forgot that the Lord actually fights for everyone. Exodus 14, 14 talks about you only need to keep silent and the Lord will fight for you. The outcomes of what justice looked like isn't always how we want it to be. Does that make sense? Sometimes we want it a particular way because it's feeding our ego. It's feeding our pride on some level. But I'm actually really enamored by the moments where I go, I really wanted it to be this, be this way. But now there's a third way that you've just come in and changed the game completely. We've got to make room for God. And when we try and take it into our own hands, we don't. We don't give any room for him to show up. We've got to be all right with people witnessing our lives, even if they don't agree with it. It's not your job to try and convince someone. It is your job to model the very things that you are in love with, the very things that love you. And when I'm overflowed with his gaze on me, I don't really care for how they respond. I just care that I've reacted and responded well to them. That can make us feel like we have to be perfectionists as Christians. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, if anything, when we make mistakes, ensure that we do a good job of cleaning it up by making sure we come humbly and go, oh, I messed that up, I'm so sorry, how can, I, how can I change it? How can I build trust back with you again? How can I do a better job this time? Ownership is key, but control is not ownership. Ownership of ourselves is very important, but ownership also gives room for the Lord to show up. It's a lovely story where um, Mother Teresa had at the time the home for the destitute and dying and uh she was known obviously for many things that she did but she was the the home for the destitute and dying was her main campus if that made sense where she and a bunch of other nuns took care of those that were in the final days or months of their life um her work was extraordinarily sacrificial she only owned two things which was a bucket and a sari and another sari that she was wearing in order to be able to wear one when she's washing the other one. That's all she owned. The, the marks of her life, I'm not suggesting we all start to do that when all we should own is a bucket and a sari. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that she had so much of her livelihood and energy, her bread for life, was the service towards other people. And Malcolm Muggridge, 
who, I don't know if any of you have heard of this, this name, some of you might recognize him, uh, was back in the day, he was a sort of womanizing, drinking, smoking, <laughs> delicious treat of a man that was basically working for the BBC and a broadcaster. He had this beautiful voice. If you, could, you can YouTube Malcolm Muggeridge and you'll find some stuff on him. In fact, the most famous thing he's known for is arguing with the Monty Python lot about the life of Brian, and he was saying how blasphemous the film was and all this kind of thing. Quite a change to the Malcolm Muggeridge that I'm talking about in this particular moment, who did not believe in God, was a massive atheist, but was inspired by the works, works, and actions of a Christian, which was Mother Teresa. And he actually did some other documentary series on other, what he called the God Spies. So he's following Mother Teresa around for about three months with a camera in Calcutta at the Home for the Destitute and Dying. Um, and he's trying to catch her out quite a lot of the time, trying to see where the flaws are, you know, which I'm sure she'd be very happy to show herself. But there's this one particular incident, and the reason why I know this story is because my father used to, when my father was alive, he, he was the head of a charity called The Leprosy Mission, and it was all about the stigma, and there's still, believe it or not, hundreds of thousands of people that still have leprosy today. A lot of people think that it doesn't exist anymore. It comes under the bracket of Hansen's disease in more Western cultures because the name has got such a bad stigma. It's very hard to get leprosy. It's not as easy or contagious as corona. So, just so you know. So it goes through families. That's normally the best way that leprosy can be spread. But the stigma is very different. And Mother Teresa called this disease the loneliest disease in the world. And she encouraged Princess Diana to go and shake hands and be, and be able to touch leprosy patients so that the press would learn that the stigma is actually just a stigma. It's not the reality of the disease, the disease itself. And so Malcolm Margaret is watching this moment where Mother Teresa is talking to the other sisters in the ward. And there's this sort of kerfuffle. There's a sort of murmuring going on. And Malcolm says, what's going on? Mother Teresa said, well, actually, you see the, the man over there in the corner? He's got no hands, no feet, covered in boils. He's blind because the leprosy has eroded the nervous system. Malcolm says, yeah, I see him. She said, well, he's, he's got about three hours to live. And we're just trying to work out what to do with him. And of course, you know, the charismatic movement will be praying life and healing <laughs> to the very final moments. But Mother Teresa felt that it was actually more important for this man in this particular moment to be held by another man. For the last few years, only the sisters and Mother Teresa had touched him. No one else had touched him. No one wanted to go near him with a barge pole. And so she looks at Malcolm and Malcolm's thinking, oh, she's getting an idea and I don't like it. <laughs> She, and she's tiny. She's this tiny little four foot 11. <laughs> and she, she was also known to be very bossy, for the record. <laughs> so she goes, right, well, yeah, I think you should go and hold him. And he went, oh, no, no, no. Now I'm just here to watch. Um, not part of the documentary, just an observer, just a commentator, so to speak. So no, 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 that's all right. I'm sure someone else can. No, 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 no. You're going to go and touch him. You're going to go and hold him. There was this going on for about five minutes. No, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea. No, not part of the, not part of the show. I'm the trainer. Thank you, Mother. It's kind of you to suggest. She grabs him by the scruff of his neck. And she said, you're going to go and hold him. 
and you're going to hold him until he dies. And here's what else. That's not his face. That's Christ's face. That's not his stumps. That's Christ's stumps. And she throws him into the corner with this leprosy patient that can feel the presence of a man. You can feel the masculine energy in a man. He could feel the presence of the man come forward. And as the leprosy patient just felt this moment, he cried, just wept. And Malcolm Ogridge, the atheist that he was, says, I was so moved in that moment that I felt for the first time the grace and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, Malcolm in his self-sacrifice chose to believe in Jesus. He became one of the biggest spokespersons for faith in the UK. And I think sometimes a lot of the church will turn away from the very moment at the darkest corners where the light can really shine. My faith increases every time I put myself in the uncomfortable space that the Lord wants me to show up. Because if I put myself there, then the Lord will show up. He never leaves you on your own. I promise you that. But remember, death is just a speed bump to a heaven. It's not the same gravitas here. And in the three hours that Malcolm gets to hold this leprosy patient and he dies in his arms, at least that man felt loved and seen and known when everyone else in the world wanted to walk away. We've got to get stronger. We've got to get braver. We've got to be all right by sitting in the corner by something that, that we detest, something that frightens us. It's so nice to come to church and get cozy and comfortable and worship the Lord in these beautiful ways. But it doesn't mean anything unless you're going to be sent out. We got too cozy. If you're not seeing enough signs and wonders in your life, it's because we got too cozy. And assumptions make no room for God. And you've seen it. People have made assumptions about you for being a Christian. And they've cut you out. And they've blocked you. Or they've seen that you follow the wrong people on Instagram and didn't give you the job. <laughs> They're lost, babe. I can feel I can feel the weight in the room. I don't want you guys to be beating yourselves up for not being in the corner. I want you to just see this moment as an opportunity, a new chapter. You did the very best that you could in every single moment you've been given so far. But there are moments that we've actually got to come to the own, our own injustice, how cruel we've been to ourselves, to let the Lord come in, gaze on it, and then we start to get better at pain because we're now facing it. We're not running away from it anymore. It's actually just pain. It's not that frightening. I want you to be people that don't numb to it, but face it. Our Lord was amazing when it came to justice because he knew how to deal with pain. The Garden of Gethsemane was a moment for us to all understand that the moments before his arrest, before he was literally about to go onto the cross and be crucified, the perfect one in front of everyone, in front of his own mother, and we think it's okay to go, you don't understand God. <laughs> no, he does understand the pain. But he also knew how to process the pain even ahead of time. He was that good. He's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane in front of the, in front of the disciples for a reason. Not because it's a nice show, because I'm trying to teach you how to pray. It's supposed to be guttural. 
It's supposed to go after something. It's supposed to be something that enlightens you to a place that you can carry across, getting ready to know the most painful thing you will ever go through, and yet you're still able to spit out gall, the painkiller that was offered to him on the cross. He spat it out. Didn't need it. Was it painful? Yeah. Was he carrying peace? Yeah. (laughs) Why? Because he knew how to face the pain. This is such a chirpy chirpy subject I know but I also want you to get used to this stuff because if you don't know how to really embellish or understand this process you don't really get to get the joy on levels that are insane you have to be you sometimes when we're numbing pain we're also numbing ourselves to ecstatic joy that is ready for you right at the very end of this tunnel and so what I want for you is this I actually want to give a gift to you today. It's a song that um, I often play when I'm in that moment where I feel like some, a hurt has happened or an injustice is happening or I watch something else take place in front of my eyes. There's nothing I can do about it. But I want to play it for you because it's, it's a, just a piece that sometimes I'm like, is this what is going to be played when I'm going into heaven? I don't know, maybe. Just a request, just a small playlist request as I arrive. Here I am, a nice glass of champagne and all of the puppies I've lost in my life so far. Like those kind of things. I've asked if they could talk as well, that would be nice. But this is a song that I heard for the first time at King's College in Cambridge. And I don't know about you, but there's something about choral music that changes my soul. There's something so angelic about it. So I'm not going to talk over this, but I'm going to let you just close your eyes. And the very people that have come to mind over this session, I want you to prepare a table for them. The Lord's going to give you some new wisdom because you're facing this moment. Make a beautiful banquet for them. And know that whatever they're choosing to do in this moment doesn't define you. But how you're treating them defines you. It says in the book of Psalms that you record every tear that falls down our face. And we thank you for every giggle, every laugh, every strength, every person that you seat at the table. And we thank you for the presence of you, Lord, in these moments, in the tension. We thank you for the divine wisdom that you bring to us when we give the room and the space for you to show up. And I just impart a courage, not a disparity, but hope. Because you persevered and chose to sit at the table of your enemies and love on them just as you would love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you enjoyed this week's Sunday sermon. We pray you experience all God has for your life. It comes, the